0: Well, good morning. Um, If you would, open the Roots chapter two. That's where we're gonna be. Uh, We're gonna cover a lot of ground, so let's go. Um, Let me pray for us really quick. Father, thank you for your word. Father, it is something that when we go and take the time to read it, Father, to submit our hearts to it, we always find that it has more shaping to do in us. Father, to teach us and train us I pray that, Father, as uh, I teach, it would be clearly from your word and from your heart to your people, that, Father, you would help us all to follow you more faithfully in response to this word. And that, Father, we would be examples of you, uh, images of you in this uh, broken world, shining forth your kindness, Father. I pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so I was listening to a podcast uh, this last week and uh, it was a podcast talking about education. Uh, Yes, boring. But the podcast talked about, specifically about leisure. Now, if I were to ask you guys, what is leisure? What would you say? Doing fun stuff. Doing fun stuff. Anyone else have a better one? What are like specific activities you would say are fun that you would do with leisure? read a book, taking a, nap. taking a nap. All right, sweet. No one's going to speak up and say video games because you're going to feel very unspiritual. All right. So yeah, doing stuff like that is typically what we think about with like leisure. Well, throughout human history, leisure has been like linked to education and learning. Typically when people thought about it, that's what they would think of. And the reason why is because it was only a luxury that very few people could afford. Not just physically or like have the money to afford it, but to even have the time to take time off to educate themselves. Men had to learn how to hunt and protect their tribe. Uh, Women had to uh, train the family up to take care of the home and the property and do things like that. And quite frankly, they just really didn't have time because they were trying to provide for their basic needs to take time to go and study and sit and be educated. And I can uh, bet very few of us are able to really sympathize with that. Most of us see school or education or things like that as a burden. Like, we don't really see that as something fun to go do. It's more of a chore, It's something that we would rather go read a book, take naps, play video games, play airsoft, do whatever it is, rather than sit in a classroom and have someone teach us. And that's because we have so many blessings that have not been common throughout the history of the world. We don't have to plan an entire day around taking our clothes to a a creek and washing them by hand and drying them and devoting a whole day to that endeavor. We don't have to plan a multi-day trip out into the forest to hunt down food in order to help provide food for our family back home. Most of us take 15 minutes to sort our laundry and put it in a machine that does it without us having to lift a finger. And most of us, can pull up an app on our phone and use Grubhub to have someone drive Chinese food to our door without having to get dressed or go outside. All of these things that we take for granted are not common. They're not something that has even been in history for very long at all. My grandfather on my mom's side had to drop out of school at the sixth grade level to go help his family with logging. Because they needed to provide for their family, and they needed him to help do so. He didn't get to continue in education, even into high school. And so, we, because we are in this position where we have so many blessings, and we have such an abundance that none of us in this room are really even at a risk of going hungry and starving, it's hard for us to sympathize with Ruth and Naomi in this passage that we're reading. Ruth and Naomi are coming into the promised land again, coming back to the the land of bread, Bethlehem. And they're coming back poor and destitute. They don't have anything coming back into this land. And it's a time that we have to remember, it's a time of the judges. It's a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. This is not a, a land that is just filled with all these incredibly kind people. That's just overwhelming, and they know when they come back, everyone's going to like pitch in and help care for them. They're coming back, and their future, whether or not they know where their meals going to come from, whether or not they know that they're going to be cared for and protected and provided for, is still up in the air. And that's where we enter into this story. A lot of times we think about the book of Ruth as a love story between Ruth and Boaz. And this story, it is a love story, but it's not between Ruth and Boaz primarily. It's a love story of God for Naomi. It's a love story of God for his people. And so we pick up this chapter, chapter two, with Ruth and Naomi finally getting back to the promised land, and but they're broke and desolate. They don't know where the next meal is going to come from. They don't see a bright future ahead for them. But God has a plan that he is going to use to overwhelm them with his kindness. So start reading with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, "'Will you let me go?' Into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor. And Naomi answered, "Go ahead, my daughter." So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, "The harvesters, the Lord be with you." "'The Lord bless you,' they replied. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, "'Whose young woman is this?' The servant answered, "'She is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab.' She asked, "'Will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters?' She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she has rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, "'Listen, my daughter,' Don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting, and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. And she fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you, so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner?" Boaz answered her, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you previously didn't know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant. Although I'm not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. And so she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. And when she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men let her even gather among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some of the stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her together. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town when her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from the mill and gave it to her. And her mother-in-law said, Where did you gather barley today and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. And Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living of the dead. And Naomi continued, The man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. And so first, what I want us to see in verses one through three is that God's kindness flows through his providence. And when I say providence, what I'm meaning is God who is all powerful, who is all wise, who does all things according to his own plan, using every detail of a person's life and the people they encounter and the other, people that, uh, other people's lives that they've encountered to bring about his perfect plan in that person's life. That's providence. God using all things for the good of those he loves. And what we see here is that from the very beginning of this passage, the whole story seems to depend on chance. It seems lucky that Naomi happened to have a relative who was a noble man. It seems that Naomi is fortunate that Ruth takes the initiative in a foreign land to go gather food for them. It seems that the stars just happen to align in the right way so that Ruth would go to Boaz's field instead of one of the many other ones. And if we were reading this story from the dominant way that people in our culture think about the world, which says that they're are only natural events, and there are no such things as supernatural workings of God in the world, if that's how we read the story, that's the only way we could describe it. But that's not the way that the world is. What we see happening in this story at the beginning is what Proverbs sixteen nine says. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. If you are like me, and I'll give you a hint, you are, you think that you know what you need. We get impatient when something we want is withheld from us, whether it's some piece of technology, a job, a car, a class, a new pair of shoes, whatever it is, when we see something we want, we get impatient if it's not coming to us quick enough. And if we don't get it, or if someone else gets it, we get angry and frustrated. And for Naomi in this situation, she's been through a lot of losing the things that she wants. For over a decade now, she has endured famines, sufferings, the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons. She left the promised land full and has returned with nothing. Or worse, instead of returning by herself with nothing, she now has a daughter-in-law who will also suffer because of her situation. She is enduring something worse than just suffering. She is seeing the suffering of a woman who loved her son. And maybe she thinks that this is just a hopeless situation. I mean, if you look at Ruth or Naomi, she's not the one that initiates for Ruth to go out and to try to find food for them. And even when Ruth comes to her, it seems that she's just kind of like, go do it. She's not trying to guide and direct her and help her to move forward. She's kind of like, if that's what you want to do, then go do it. Naomi realizes that she can't care for Ruth. She's an old widow and incapable of providing for and protecting Ruth. But God can't. Up until this point, the desperate state of Naomi and Ruth has been the focus. But now, beginning at this point in the story, we get to see the beautiful strokes of God's pen as he starts writing a narrative that they could have never dreamed of. Like a narrator who starts to talk over a movie and tell you really important details that the the characters in the movie don't know, we begin to hear the author of Ruth telling us how God is working behind the scenes. There is a relative, a man who is prominent, that is wealthy, who has a noble character like God named Boaz. Not just that, but this Moabite woman, she's not giving up despite their situation. And in fact, without Naomi suggesting where she should go or what she should do, Ruth asked for Naomi's permission to go into the fields and to pick up grain behind the harvesters. This was a practice that God had instituted in his people in Leviticus 23, where he says, when you reap the um, harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. And so we see God writing customs into the practice of his practices of his people years in advance of this situation, knowing that Boaz would be a righteous man who would come and follow that practice to the benefit of a Moabite woman who happens to walk into his field. All of this is the plan of God that he has been weaving up until this point to bring about his perfect plan. But not only that, we see Ruth's heart planning to go to a field, like the proverb says. Her heart makes her plan, but quite literally, God directs her steps to the very precise field that belongs to Boaz. Nothing in this story is chance. It is all God weaving a beautiful narrative to bring about the salvation and the redemption of Naomi and Ruth. And in your life, Know that God is not some cold, distant person that doesn't care for you. Are you anxious in school? Are you fearful? Are you depressed? Are you consumed with worry? Are you consumed with envy? Know this, that the precise circumstances in your life have been orchestrated by a God who cares for you. And that he is not someone who delights in you lacking the things that you need. Who delights in withholding good things for you from you. But he's a God who orchestrates the narrative of our life to draw us into recognizing who he is. To seeing him and his character in a much more beautiful way than we have ever seen before. Naomi and her husband thought, That if they left the promised land when it was in the middle of a famine, they would find what they needed. They left the land of God's promise. They thought too little of God. His kindness, his care for them was not big enough in their eyes to keep them in his land and in his promises. They bought into the lie that what other nations could offer them were better. That serving other gods and pursuing other promises were better than God's. They went into foreign lands. They explored all that they had to offer. And what Naomi realized and has realized at this point is that when she was in the land of the living God in the middle of a famine, she was full. But now she's coming back from all of those lands that promised her so much more empty. Yet God was still a God of kindness. In all of her wandering, in all of these missteps, in all of these wayward paths that she went down, he was behind the scenes weaving and orchestrating all of the details of her life to set her up for restoration, just like he is in your lives also. He has placed you in the families that he has. He has placed you in this church to experience his blessings and his promises in his church among his people for the sake of you seeing who he is and for you being given the opportunity to respond to the gospel and to be saved from all of these false promises and all of these false gods that try to promise you life but fail to deliver. And second... We see that God's kindness flows through his people. Verses 14 through 17 tells us about Boaz's kindness to Ruth. From the moment that he enters the story, Boaz just overflows with godly character. And even our first impression falls short of where we are left by the end of the story. The way he greets his servants, the Lord be with you. And then he goes about tending his business and he cares for those under his watch enough to know when some new person has happened to walk onto his land to start gathering. And yet even his first question is just laced with compassion where he asks about uh, Ruth, whose young woman is this? Now this isn't a question about talking about her like she's a piece of property and that she belongs to someone in that way. No, it's a question about who are the providers, the protectors in her life? What's the family she belongs to that is going to be able to care for her and help her after this point? Because coming and gleaning, there will come a point where this harvest ends. Who cares for her after that point? It's a question of compassion and caring about Ruth. And so his kindness doesn't even stop there. He invites her into his field to place her under his protection to benefit from the work of his workers so that the jars that they had to go to a well and fill and bring back to the field, she can drink from. And as verse says, he ultimately tells her that she is finding refuge there under the wings of Israel's God. And this principle, this comforting image of God like a a mother hen who gathers her chicks up under her wings to protect them from a storm is what motivates Boaz to show this level of kindness to a stranger. Why? Why does Boaz conduct himself with such care for a stranger and for those serving him in his land? It's because Boaz remembers the history of Israel's people. Boaz remembers the kindness of God that flows through history as he lavishes his love upon a people for himself. He remembers the stories that his people have told countless times as they gather together at the end of days around a campfire after a long day of harvesting. Where they tell about God calling a foreigner named Abram out of a land of idolatry to come to a promised land that he would give him. They remember the stories of their uh, ancestors being enslaved in Egypt and being oppressed, and being exploited for their labor. He remembers how God displayed his faithfulness in the Exodus when he conquered the greatest power to the world at that time through supernatural wonders and delivered his people out of their power. He remembers... How God rained down manna from heaven to feed them in the wilderness when they were wandering, and how their clothes and their sandals, which they walked in for 40 years, did not wear out, but stayed like new and protected them while they were wandering in the wilderness. He remembers how God split the Jordan over for them to cross into the promised land to take it, and how the walls of Jericho came crashing down without them doing anything to affect the walls. He remembers how God turned their enemies away from them when they were being faithful and taking over the promised land and how God ultimately gave them the land he had promised so long before to Abram. What Boaz recognizes is that the reason why he can speak of Ruth coming under the shelter of the Almighty and finding refuge under his wings is because he had found refuge himself there also. He knew that God is a faithful God who is a refuge for the vulnerable. As Exodus says in Exodus, or as God says in Exodus 22, you must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him. Since you were resident aliens in Egypt, you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me. And I will certainly hear their cry. God did not use his power as the almighty of the universe to choose for himself the strongest and most powerful kingdom of the world. No, he chose a single man named Abram, (coughs) married to a barren woman, to create his people. And the whole relationship was one of grace. God's people were supposed to reflect his character or reflect on his character, and then they were supposed to reflect his character. The recognition that the Almighty of the universe was fighting for them only because of his kind and compassionate heart was supposed to stir his people that he had chosen and saved to show that same level of kindness to others. Why do you need to steal, fight, kill in order to obtain for yourself If your God is the one who fights for his people and calls them to reflect his character instead. If he's the one who goes before you, if he's the one who orchestrates all things for your good, if he's the one who determines every step of your life to bring about his will and purpose then you no longer have to hold on to the belief that this world is malicious and turned against you. And the only way to move forward and to grow and to be secure and safe is for you to take something yourself and do it all yourself. But if he's fighting for you, it frees you up. You don't have to think this person's asking for money, but if I give it to them, that's less for me. You're freed up to think I can give away freely because my God has given all things freely to me. And if my God, who has been faithful in providing for generations of my people up until this point in bringing us to this promised land and giving us all that we need. If he's brought us up to this point and been this faithful then my hope, my security is not in me gathering every bit of wheat from the ground when it drops during harvesting. No, my hope is in the God who has brought me here. And so I can leave wheat on the ground for the foreigner and the stranger and the poor to come and pick up and provide for themselves. Because my hope is not in the material possessions I have. It's not even in the physical land. My hope is in the God who has been faithful to bring me to this point. And if this is true for Boaz and for other believers in the nation of Israel, how much more true is it in the community that God has formed through the full display of his kindness that flowed from the hands and the side and the feet of his son? As Paul says, if he did not even withhold his own son for us, how then then will he not give us all things? That's the thing that motivates us. It's what motivated them was seeing God's kindness on display and then believing that he was the same God yesterday and today and forever. And for us, it's seeing God lifted on a tree, crucified for us to bring us in as his people and knowing that that same God who loved us to that degree to send his own son to die in our place is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we show and display the kindness and the character and the generosity that our God has shown to us. Because if he has cared for us to that degree, we have no other source of hope and promise and confidence that will last like he will. That promise of a Messiah. It's what Malachi wrote about. When he said, there is coming a day when the Son of Of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings alluding and looking forward to this beautiful day when out of this dark and gloomy night that has seemed to like envelop his people god would send the son of righteousness to rise and bring healing to his people and restore them to himself to make them a holy people to rescue them from the mindset that our hope in this world is in what we can take for ourselves, but to be reminded of the beautiful nature of our God who cares for his people. And for those of you who have received this kindness of God in Christ, you have found refuge under the wings of the Lord God. You have found healing. Your heart has been brought back to life your soul is singing a new song. I remember the night when I finally believed in God, truly. I'd known a lot of things about him for a long time, but I remember that night. I remember sitting in a hallway weeping because for months, my sin had felt like this sickness in me, but I didn't want to give it up. And for months, I would felt this guilt weighing down on me. And it just felt like it kept getting heavier and heavier and heavier until this load was too much for me to be able to hold up on my own. And I remember that moment when it finally feels like it is going to utterly crush me. And I cried out for God to have mercy on me. And instead of it crushing me, the weight of my sin fell on Christ and crushed him instead. And he bore the punishment that I deserved. And I remember that moment because the guilt was instantly evaporated and it was filled with peace and with joy. And I remember getting up and running down the hallway in my church like a fool, singing and jumping and dancing. And I was not a good dancer. And I remember going up to my pastor and saying, I just got saved. I remember going out in the, uh, this walkway between two of our buildings and dancing and skipping with joy. What other response is there when you go from being a dead person to having your lungs filled with air? What other response is appropriate but to sing? It's why in the Christian religion, it is so unique that we sing and we worship because we have a joyful message of liberative captives who have been set free and received the kindness of God. And it's why we offer that kindness to all who will hear it. It's why we're called to live that kindness out in our character and when we're interacting with others. Because we have received such a great kindness, how could we do anything else? So why should the church be a A church to display this kindness, to display the acts of kindness and love and mercy and grace. Because in doing so, by rejecting selfish ambition in our own hearts, we reflect God who saved us. We testify to others about how wonderful He is. We become a field of safety for the vulnerable to come and take refuge in a place they can come and find protection and kindness which god has produced in us through the displays of his own kindness but if any of you know we're not perfect at this but when we fail we must be quick to repent We must be quick to reaffirm for ourselves and our failures as Christians the same message that saved us initially. That our progress, our future, our security, our hope comes from the character of God, not from us picking ourselves up and taking things by force. So when we fail as a church or personally, as individuals, we reaffirm the same gospel message by falling on God's grace and kindness again. Always, the gospel of Christ, whether it be the successes we have and the heights that we walk in and the great things we accomplish or the failures we're walking through, the mistakes we make and the sins we struggle with, all of it drives us back to the foot of God's cross, where we see the full kindness of God displayed for us, and we can say, if he didn't spare his own son for me to save me, then I know that he will give me all things, and that includes the help I need in this struggle I'm going through and the forgiveness I need for the mistakes I have made, even as a Christian. We are always directed back to God's kindness as the source of our strength. And this is just what God's done for us. Just like how Boaz invited Ruth in, how he allowed her to pick up the droppings that fell accidentally from harvesting. He also gave her water. He gave her some of his own meal in verse 14. And then he ordered his his workers to intentionally drop wheat in her path for her. Just as Boaz did that for her, This is what God does for us. God invites us into his kingdom. He calls us his children. He gives us his spoken word to teach us. He gives us the bread of life in his son to dine on. He invites us to the waters of baptism. He calls us to dine with him at the Lord's Supper. And he places his spirit in our hearts to ensure that our labors are more fruitful than they ever could have been otherwise. Boaz is displaying God's character in his kindness to Ruth. And so God's kindness, it flows through his providence of orchestrating all circumstances to bring about his plan and to bless his creatures and his creation. And it flows through his people who, in seeing his provision, are so shaped and moved that they reflect his character and his kindness to others. And God's kindness flows through his persistence. Ruth had been gone the entire day. And if I was in Naomi's shoes, I would have spent that day grieving my losses and worrying about the last family member I had in this world. The whole day has passed, and Naomi, or she still wants to be called at this point, Mara, knows nothing of the kindness God has been working for. During this day. Ruth in verse 18 walks back to Naomi. And for Naomi, this is the point in the story where it seems it finally clicks. To start with, Ruth has obviously had a successful day. That Naomi seems to be instantly revitalized. She still doesn't know Boaz was involved, but blesses whoever it is that has shown such kindness to Ruth. And then in verse 19... She asked Ruth, Whose field did you gather in? She was not prepared for the answer. This is a moment where the, the story, it seems to Naomi, has been focusing on Ruth. Finally, she's about to realize, just like us, where when we first pick up the book of Ruth, we think Ruth is the focus of the story because of the title. And then it kind of comes to a shock to us that really the focus has kind of shifted to Naomi and that she's the center of this story. Well, just like that moment happened for you guys a couple of weeks ago, I'm sure, this moment's about to happen for her in real life. That this story is actually about God's kindness fixated on her. And so she asked, where did you go gather barley today? May the Lord bless whoever took notice on you. And Ruth tells her, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Now, there's a literary device in this that's meant to cue us in to some drama unfolding in this uh, couple of verses we just read. You have where when Naomi starts talking, it says, Naomi said, may the Lord bless him because he has not forgotten his kindness to the living or the dead. And then it says, and this seems strange to us, Naomi continued. It's kind of redundant. Naomi's already speaking. But in Hebrew literature, One of the things that happens is when you see someone say something and then it's followed by another cue, they said something again, it's supposed to show you there's a break between the first two. And it seems to to me that what happens here is Naomi is so overwhelmed by the revelation that God is going to provide for them more than just their next meal or next couple of meals. Initially, Naomi is focused on the kindness that some man has shown to Ruth. Naomi thinks it's really she herself is unimportant. The one who has a future, the one who has a hope is Ruth. And yet even her hope is not secure. Whoever this man is, his kindness can dry up as quickly as it comes. And at the very least, it'll dry up at the end of the harvest. But Ruth's answer strikes Naomi. She expects, Ruth's answer, to be merely about a man, about a temporal hope. But the kindness, the kindness being shown is God's, not just some man's. And it is to her, Naomi. It is not temporary. It is persistent. It is eternal. It has endured her abandoning him and going to another land with other gods. It has endured the loss of her husbands and sons. It has endured her old age and despair. And now in this revelation that Boaz is the one, she realizes God's plan is to provide and protect her and her daughter for more than just one or two meals. I believe what Naomi is experiencing is what the prodigal son also felt. He had squandered everything. He had went away full, lost everything, and come back just hoping to be treated as a servant, just to make it by, just to have food. But instead, the father ran to him, and he embraced him, and he provided for him, and he threw him a feast. Naomi went away full, and she has come back empty squandering the promises that God has given to her and her people. And instead of finding that God is just going to allow her to come back in and be some servant and just have their meal provided for, she has found that God has come running to her and is embracing her and providing a feast for her with excesses of our wheat that Ruth has collected and is now providing a future for her more than just surviving At this point in the story, she is the prodigal that is now being lavished with her father's undeserved kindness. She is being overcome with the love of a restless God who is willing to endure humiliation for the sake of saving his people. She is being reminded that God's kindness is always meant to lead us to repentance, to draw us into his arms. She is having her eyes lifted to the hills to see that God is the, the maker of heaven and earth and that he is her helper. She is being reminded that what is true about God in the light is also true about him in the darkness. She has come to the point where she sees the kindness of God and her response finally is not to run away to something seemingly more promising, but to entrust herself to God's kindness. And coming face to face with his faithfulness, she finally realizes that she would rather be at home in the presence of God's kindness than in the company of those whose promises are seemingly more magnificent, but always fall short. Naomi is not the same. And from this point on, you could send, I believe, if I was a betting man, famines, plagues, or whatever else I would put my money on Naomi staying right there in the promised land and saying again and again and again, blessed is he who has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Because God's kindness flows through his persistence. It doesn't end. There is not a point at which God's kindness breaks it doesn't have a, a stress point that if you put enough stress on God's kindness, it'll eventually snap. It is eternal and it persists no matter how many wayward paths you go down, no matter how many sins you feel like you are struggling with and overwhelmed, no matter how many times you are foolish, just like me, and buy into the lie that some temporal thing offers you more hope than God, no matter how many times He is persistent to show kindness to those who come to him for refuge. And this is not a permission to abuse his grace and to think God will always welcome me back so I can just keep doing whatever I want to. No, that mindset is the person who goes into the land of Moab and never comes back to the promised land, but says at some point, I I was in the land. And so God's got to keep showing me the faithfulness. God's got to keep showing me his kindness, but I'm going to choose to stay the rest of my life away from him. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who comes back into the land and endures famine and endures suffering and endures making their mistakes and knows that their father's kindness was displayed fully in sending his son to draw in brothers and sisters from all nations to put their hope and trust in him. And that for those who keep clinging to the feet of Christ, God's kindness is immovable and unshakable and always restoring them and bringing them closer and closer to the day. When that will be removed, there will no longer be any sin. There will no longer be any famines, but his people will be with him and have all things because they are in Christ. So what will you do? Is your Christian identity solely wrapped up in your parents? And that they were the descendants, they were the people who have experienced God's blessing and chosen to follow his kindness. And you're just kind of alone for the ride for right now. Are you tired of being forced to come to church? To participate in Christian activities? And do you believe that the community of God is more like a place of famine than it is a place of blessing? Do you see the Christian faith as something that has some purpose, some utilities in helping you get certain things, of helping people think a certain way about you, but your heart's not moved by the enduring kindness of God? Do you look around at others in the church and compare yourself and think, God better be glad I'm part of this group. The church is a place that is drenched by the flowing streams of God's kindness. And if you have not allowed yourself to be personally, to let your own heart long and love and receive this kindness that is offered to us in Christ. If you have seen the love of Christ you seen that he is willing to take the punishment you deserve, or if you have and you are still waiting and you still want to abandon his ways and to go to some other land that has more promises, some other land that seems like it's not a famine, just know that his kindness is always meant to bring us to Repentance always to bring us back to him and realize that his kindness his character, his faithfulness that's our hope not how much our harvest is uh, abounding not the types of clothes we wear or the schools we go to come to him his kindness is inexhaustible he will not turn away from those who come to him so let's pray Father, I thank you that your kindness your kindness is more magnificent than my words can explain. That, Father, I know that what I can even hope to give today is just a taste. It's just enough just to wet the palate to get us ready to crave more of your kindness. And I pray that, Father, that is exactly what you would do. That you would cause our hearts to long for you and to want to know you more. And that as our knowledge and our understanding of who you are grows, we can rest assured that our confidence in your promises always being true will grow in the same proportion. That, Father, our faith, it grows to the same degree that the object of our faith grows. That is, as we understand more of who you are, more of what you have done, more of what you are capable of, more of your kindness and your love and your compassion and your justice and your mercy. As we understand these things more, Father, our faith grows likewise. And Father, help us to display these characteristics to those around us, to be little images of you that shine your light into this dark world. Father, give us confidence in trusting in you. In your name I pray, amen.